The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, children ages four and five can be dismissed to the right-hand side of the worship center. And I want to invite you to join me in your Bibles in Philippians chapter one. We're going to be beginning at the very end of verse 18 today and going through verse 26. Philippians chapter one, verses 18 through 26. Um, I want to open our time together as we look at this passage with something that will probably show my age pretty well. So when we come to this passage, we're coming to one of the verses that marks Philippians as one of the verses that most of us, if we grew up in church or maybe if we were outside of church, knows. It's this idea that Paul explains to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I remember being in college and high school, passionate about the gospel, And I just remember thinking, there's going to be some great last words. You know, they're going to be up there with the Terminator when he would say that he would be back. Or maybe to better show my age without giving too much away, I love you 3,000. Maybe something up there with those lines. I could combine the beauty of a famous last line, like in all my favorite movies, with the beauty of a life lived for Jesus, like Jim Elliott. Lottie Moon, those others. And what it would look like for me, I always thought, was I could go to a people group that had never heard about Jesus before. And as I would step off the plane, I could declare the gospel. And as my life would end, I could cry out, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And the people group would get saved. And then I could be one of the greatest missionaries ever. I remember thinking about that. And then one day as I read the passage, I realized... That's not just in death that God receives glory. It's also in our lives. Because if I'm honest, as we approach this text, for many of us, it's not how it's going to end. For many of us, our story won't look the same as Paul's. For many of us, glorifying God looks like living a faithful life, giving glory to him every step along the way, dying peacefully in his arms as we walk into the blessed promise that is given to us in the gospel. So the question that I'm going to seek to answer today is what does that look like? What does it look like to live is Christ, to die is gain? How is that practically built out in our lives? So the main point I want you to see, even before we get into the text today, I want you to keep this in mind as we read through it, is that as believers, we can look to the example of Paul And know that we will and we can glorify Christ in both life and in death. That is the main point I want you to see this morning. So join with me in Philippians chapter 1 beginning in the second part of verse 18. We're going to read through verse 26 this morning. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, 
I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I want to remind you that in this passage, the author of Philippians, Paul, is sitting in jail right now, being persecuted because of sharing his faith. We know that the church in Philippi is made up of people from kind of all over the socioeconomic spectrum. We see that when Paul entered into Philippi, he met someone named Lydia, who was a trader of purple goods. She was rich. She was wealthy. She was seeking the Lord, and God saw fit for Paul to be there to share the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart that she might believe. Shortly after that, a demon-possessed girl was following them around, and Paul cast the demon out of her, shared the gospel with her, and she came to faith in Christ. Because of that action, the people who owned her were upset. They had lost their livelihood, and so they brought up false accusations, and Paul and those with him were put into prison. There they shared with a Philippian jailer after God miraculously delivered them. That Philippian jailer and his household came to faith. So we not only see a Jew and Gentile, but we see rich, poor. This church is comprised of a beautiful picture of the people of God gathered together to whom he is writing now, people who have been with Paul for some time and would naturally sympathize for him, be hurt for him, be praying for him while he's in jail. So he writes this rooted in joy, explaining to them the reality of God being in control over all things and what he is going to do. So as we look at this passage this morning, keeping in mind the example of Paul and how we can learn from that how to glorify Christ in life and death, I want to point out two realities that this passage shows us this morning. The first, Paul rejoices because his life and Paul's death is in Christ's hands. Paul rejoices because his life and death is in Christ's hands. As you read through this passage, you will notice that there's confidence that Paul has as he writes about what he will do, these things that are certain. In fact, the idea of him certainly doing something, that he will do something or Christ will accomplish something is spoken about five different times in these verses, four of which are in the first two. In verse 18, Paul says he will rejoice. In verse 19, Paul says that this situation will turn out for my deliverance. In verse 20, he says that he will not be at all ashamed because of what he's going through. Also in verse 20, Paul says that Christ will be honored. And ultimately, a few verses later, this leads Paul to the conclusion, verse 25, that he will remain for it is better for them. There's this confidence, even though Paul cannot directly say what is happening in the future, he has confidence of what will occur, or in the case of him not being ashamed, what will not occur. He has confidence because all of this is in God's sovereign plan. He can speak with such boldness about what will happen because of where he is, because God is in control. Points to this confidence, not in his own efforts or abilities, but in the one who holds this plan in his hands, and that is God. Why will Paul rejoice? Because his circumstances will turn out for his deliverance, and he will not be ashamed. That deliverance could look like life and rescue. That deliverance could look like death and ultimate fellowship with Christ. Either way, Paul would be delivered. He knew it wasn't a coincidence that he was in prison. 
It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake in God's plan. God's not scratching his head like, oh man, that wasn't supposed to happen. He was scheduled to be in Damascus today. That's not what's going on. It was part of God's sovereign plan. No matter what happened to Paul, in this sovereign plan, Christ would be glorified. Whether Paul would live, whether Paul would die, Christ was going to be honored and there was no way around it. And Paul knew this. This was the confidence with which he could speak no matter what would happen. Christ would be glorified. I mean, if you think about Paul, he's got to be one of the most frustrating people in the world to the Roman Empire at that time. This man is a pain to them. All the Roman Empire wants is a united people wrapped around the emperor and the worship of the emperor alone. But here's Paul going around declaring that Jesus is the true king and to live for him instead. So their solution is to arrest him. Well, that will certainly shut him up. He won't preach about the gospel anymore. But then they arrest him. God sets him free in the jailer that they put with him. Well, he becomes a convert. He becomes a believer in this new faith that Paul is preaching. Even here last week, we talked about the fact that as Paul sits in prison again for his faith, he's chained to a guard, a rotation of guards. So the Romans, in their infinite wisdom in this case, have decided that the best way to keep Paul quiet is to make sure he has someone to talk to about the gospel who needs to hear it. And there's this rotation of guards. So in essence, what they're stuck with is if you keep him alive, Paul's going to preach the gospel. He's excited to preach the gospel. That's what he's living his life for is to build the church. So great, Paul thinks, to live as Christ, to preach the gospel. Well, the Roman Empire could kill him. Well, what would that do except confirm that his story is true? Because who would be willing to die for such a thing, not pushing it off till the end? Continuing to affirm that the gospel is true. So you look at Paul, you've got two options. Let him live and preach. Kill him and let the blood that's spilled preach to the truth of the gospel. And either way, Paul's excited. He gets to be with the people of God and build them up and preach the gospel. Or if he dies, he gets to see Jesus face to face once again and fellowship with him in the fullness of Christ's glory and the full realization of what the gospel brings. It's a win-win for Paul. He's, he's sitting in a sweet situation as far as he's concerned. And the beauty of this is that we look at Paul and oftentimes when we approach Scripture and we see the things that Paul's written or we hear the stories about Paul, I think oftentimes we come to him and we think of him as a man who would stand on the buildings with his cape flapping in the wind. He's the super apostle, the guy whose level we will never obtain. But Scripture is telling us the exact opposite because as believers in Jesus Christ, we can have this exact same confidence both in life and in death because we believe in the same gospel that Paul preached. Paul was a sinner. He was a human just like the rest of us. He was gifted by God to do some incredible things. He was gifted, inspired by God to write the scriptures of truths about God that we can learn. But at the end of the day, Paul believes in the same gospel that we believe in. And the beauty is it's the same God who has the same sovereign plan for us as well in 2019 to make much of Christ. You think about it in terms of the songs we sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. You cannot destroy or end the mission of God. Death is the greatest enemy that we face as humans. There is nothing else more complete in our sense, in its victory, there's nothing more final from our perspective in what it does. Death is something you can't outrun. You can't 
pay to put it off. You can't convince it to hold off. You can't have any knowledge over it that will give you victory over death. From our perspective, we are powerless. Death is final, except Christ defeated death completely. We're powerless. There's nothing we can do. And so God took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died in our place, experiencing the fullness of death, but it couldn't hold him. On the third day, he rose again. And this victory over death is what is offered to us in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sins and believe that Jesus is the way to be saved, that he truly conquered death. Jesus has conquered it, made death look powerless. Something so final, so complete to us was rendered powerless through the work of Jesus Christ. And if Christ's victory over death is offered to those who believe in him, and death cannot stop the truth of the gospel, death cannot stop the Savior, death certainly can't stop his plan. If death didn't even leave so much as a mark on Jesus, that he is raised to never die again, it's something not even on the radar anymore for our risen Savior, then we can rest assured that nothing will stop God's sovereign plan because even our greatest enemy, which is death, could not even put a dent in that plan. In fact, our God is so powerful, he used it to his advantage to create this beautiful gospel we believe in. And even more than that, Because we have victory over death through Jesus Christ, in life, our mission has become completely changed by something that is held secure in eternity for us, as Peter would write about in 1 Peter chapter 1. So because of this beautiful, powerful reality of God, that his sovereign plan is perfect and nothing can stop it, Paul was confident that his life was in God's hands completely, And that the mission of God would be accomplished no matter what. Whether Paul would live or whether Paul would die. Were he to be spared, he would continue to preach. Should he die, the message would be shown to be true. And the gospel would continue to spread just as it had after the death of Stephen. After his death, the believers went out running from the persecution, sharing the gospel as they went. Whereas these zealous Jews thought that killing Stephen would end the gospel once and for all, the fear would paralyze these early believers, actually motivated them, and caused the gospel to spread even faster. The fact that the gospel leads to ultimate victory in life and death, it creates a point of tension in our lives for those who believe in Christ. It's a tension that Paul writes about in verses 23 and 24. We see his heart here where he recognizes the victory in living for Christ and the victory in being with Christ after his death. Both realities are so beautiful to him that he wrestles between them. Listen to these verses again in verse 23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain on the flesh is more necessary on your account. As Paul looks at these realities, he sees how beautiful it is to die and be with Christ, that the sufferings of sin, the sufferings of persecution would be over, but he also knows that there's this beauty in the reality of living for the gospel of Christ, of equipping the believers there in Philippi. And there's this wrestle between the mission of God and stepping into the beauty of the realization of the promises 
that are given to us in the gospel. To depart and be with Christ in glory would be better. But the fullness of Christ on display with our faith made sight in that departure. But God has other plans for Paul. Plans that Paul desires and longs to walk in obedience to. He wanted Paul to remain, which we saw in verse 25, is that last statement of confidence that Paul will remain for it is better for them. What I want to point out to you is that Paul would remain because God had fruitful labor for Paul. And this labor is very interesting because he uses this terminology of fruitful labor and tells us later on in this passage that the fruitful labor is that many may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So what is the fruitful labor that God has called Paul to in life? To invite others in to give glory in Christ. To live is Christ. To invite people to live in that. Paul understood his mission to invite as many people into this reality as possible. That was Paul's complete purpose. So Paul's confidence was rooted in the fact that God is sovereign. He had a perfect plan for his life that absolutely could not be stopped, both in life and in death. God's plan to glorify himself would be accomplished through Paul. What I want to show you as well is that this plan isn't a new plan. This reality is something that all of Scripture points to. So when we look at Scripture as a whole, when we look at our Bibles, for us here today, we see it's separated into an Older Testament and a Newer Testament. And the beauty of God's Word is that they all tell one story. 66 books all pointing to the same plan. We have to understand When we approach Scripture, whether Older Testament or Newer Testament, that this is all ultimately pointing to God's plan to ransom a people to himself, to glorify himself. This plan of glorifying himself and God's sovereign plan, when we get to the Newer Testament, is not a plan B. God did not look at the nation of Israel, make a covenant with them, and then saw that it failed and go, all right. Trinity, what do we got on the uh, plan for us today? Holy Spirit, Jesus, looking for some answers from you. What are we going to do? Jesus, I'll go down. I'll volunteer. We could come up with a new plan. No, this was all pointing to the same reality, the same story of the gospel, telling one united, unanimous story. So this reality that in life or in death, God will be glorified is pointed to all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapters 39 through 50, we see the story of a man named Joseph. Joseph's life is a story of incredible highs and incredible lows. He's a favorite son who's given this golden coat so that he can remind all his brothers that he's the favorite from his father. He has a dream, and Joseph decides it's a good idea to share this dream with his siblings. Hey, guys, I had this dream. It's incredible. All you guys were bowing down to me because I was your king. Naturally, the brothers did not like that dream so much. And so in anger, they sold him and he went into captivity in Egypt. But there, he ended up in Potiphar's house, given a lot of power and authority in the kingdom and continued to glorify God in it. So we go from low to a high. There, he's falsely accused of something he didn't do involving Potiphar's wife when she tries to frame him. So he goes to prison from high to low. Many years pass, and while there, he has a vision of an upcoming famine. And so he reports this to the king of Egypt, and they begin to stockpile grain. And lo and behold, the famine comes, 
just as God told Joseph and just as Joseph had told the king. It was proven to be true, and Joseph is restored to a position of power, second over all the people of Egypt. And through that high, he's able to save his family, who's still in Israel at this point, bring them in that they might have food and a place at the table. It's highs and lows the entire way through. When his brothers recognized that it was Joseph, they thought Joseph would still be angry at them because of what they had done, this heinous crime that they had committed against them. But ultimately... God used every point in Joseph's story to bring glory to himself. Nothing that happened to Joseph was outside of God's plan, and Joseph recognized this. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is a verse in the Older Testament in Genesis chapter 50 that's ultimately pointing to the same reality that Paul is describing in Philippians chapter 1. These men mean it for evil against me, but ultimately God is using this that many people might be kept alive, in this case spiritually alive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they meant for evil, God meant for good, to glorify himself in it. So Joseph and Paul say the same thing because this is the same sovereign plan of God the entire time. And just as God was faithful to preserve his life in the Old Testament, God was faithful to preserve our lives in Jesus Christ for those who repent and believe in him. The same plan is in Paul's life as well. And this leads to our second point this morning. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is that our purpose is to glorify God in our life and death. Our purpose is to glorify God in our life and death. So we look at this verse that's at the center of this passage, the center focus that Paul is describing and building out on, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And we kind of have to step back for a moment and ask ourselves, we see these verses, we see Paul's conclusion because of God's sovereign plan that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We might even understand why, because of the mission of the gospel, because God is glorified in both life and death. But the work that we need to do now is to look at these verses and then ask ourselves how we might be obedient in light of them. In 2019, for a believer in America in 2019, in a much different circumstance than Paul found himself in, what does this look like? What does it mean to live as Christ? In life, ultimately, it means that our sovereign, powerful God, with infinite means at his disposal, has chosen for us as believers to be the primary way which the gospel is shared to the nations. So get this, God with infinite means at his disposal. We're talking creator God who out of nothing created everything, merely speaking, and it came into being. He has infinite means and power at his disposal. Yet in God's infinite wisdom, true infinite wisdom, he has seen fit and invited us in on the mission to share the gospel with the nations. How is the gospel moved forward through our proclamation? He's given us the responsibility, but I would argue even more so the blessing of playing a part in that. He did not have to do it, yet he saw fit to. 
But the issue is, so often, whether we would say it or not, if we were to examine our hearts, we're believing a gospel that's so small we wouldn't live for it. So we look at living as Christ, dying as gain. If you're not living for, if you don't have a gospel that you would live for, if you've taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and the beauty of it and made it smaller into something more like the gospel is something that saves us from hell, or the gospel is only something that saves us to be good moral people while God is distant, stepping in only if things go horribly wrong. If your understanding of the gospel is hell insurance or to be saved to be good moral people, you're living for a gospel that's too small. And even then, it's going to be a struggle to live for it. And if you're struggling to live for it, why would you die for it? We are only going to be a people willing to die for a gospel that we're willing to live for. These gospels that I've shared with you, that Jesus died that we might be saved from hell only, that Jesus died that in him we might be good people only. These are not the true fullness of the gospel. The gospel is not limited to those things. That is an aspect of the gospel, that Jesus, through his blood, through his perfect sacrifice, has ransomed us so that we might be saved from the penalty of hell. Yes, that is true. But that's not where it stops. Has Jesus saved us to good works, as Paul himself would write in Ephesians chapter 2? Yes, but he has not saved us just to be good moral people. There's a great fullness to the gospel that we have to understand. That we cannot live for something smaller than what the Bible teaches to be the good news. So being missional, living to give Christ the glory, when we look at it, And sharing the gospel begins in our walk as individual believers in Jesus Christ. It begins here. We talk about being satisfied in Christ above all else. Seeing him as worthy of the affections of our lives. This is where it begins. If we're to say, okay, I want to live on mission for Christ. I want to live and give him the glory. It begins with our individual walk with him. It's rooted in Bible study and prayer. See, what we're talking about here is not that we come to church on Sunday morning and we receive the word of God and we say, yes, that's good. And then the rest of the week we do our own thing and don't think twice about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I'm encouraging you to live for, what Paul is encouraging us to live for in giving Christ the glory is a reality of the gospel that is intertwined into everything that we do. Most commonly, it's rooted in consistent Bible study and prayer in that you are receiving revelation of God from his word. You are praying, communicating with him through prayer, and that is motivating you throughout the day, not just limited to a point in time, but almost like that burst of energy to carry you throughout the day to every morning, set your mind on the things of God, or every evening, root your lives on the things of God. It's not just limited to a Sunday morning when we're here together. But this continues on as well. It's not just limited to Bible study and prayer, though God has given us those means to stir our affections for him, to be reminded of him and the gospel. But it continues as we work well, work with excellence, as we play well and enjoy the gifts that he's given us and love well being satisfied in what he's given and who he is as our loving father who is near to us. From there, it overflows into our families, 
our friends, our co-workers, others close to us. The, the language that we use here at Abner Creek is the neighborhoods and the nations. So as we are pursuing Christ as individuals who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, we are having our affection stirred for him, reminding ourselves of the gospel, encouraging one another. It overflows into the community around us and being missional towards the neighborhoods. So this means that for those of us who are parents, First and foremost, the easiest way to point you, to direct you in giving Christ the glory is in raising your kids in such a way that glorifies God, teaching them the depths of the word of God. This is something that I've been passionate about in the student ministry that you've heard from me so many times. And while I'm up here, I want you to hear it again. I am not the primary discipler of your students. Parents, you are. And I want to help you walk in that, in training your students up in the Word of God and raising them in an understanding of the depth and the beauty of the Word of God. So simply put, what does this look like if we are seeking to raise our kids in such a way that glorifies God? Simply spend time reading the Bible and just praying with them. I'm not talking about that you open up your Bible and say, all right, kids, gather around. The entire book of Leviticus is ours to have for the next hour and a half. But taking little passages of Scripture, reading through them, and praying together. One of the most powerful ways that you can teach your kids about the beauty of God is simply by praying while they're with you. It doesn't have to be perfect. None of us are perfect at this. But think about the difference it makes just to take five minutes a week to read the Bible with your kids. Think of how many kids don't see that growing up, haven't had that experience. This is an opportunity as ransomed people of God, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, to make a difference in your family, to change that trend if you never had that for yourself. One of the other things I suggest to you, and this is just very practical, have conversations about what's going on in their lives throughout the week. And so we play this game at camp whenever we come together at the end of the day as a church to talk about what happened when we're at camp with the student ministry. And it's something that I learned from one of the pastors I listened to. His name is Matt Chandler. It's a game called Highs and Lows. So what you do is you gather around with your family, maybe you're at the dinner table, maybe just some time that you have together, and you have everyone play Highs and Lows. What's your favorite part of the day and what's your least favorite part of the day? It's wonderful because even if you've had a great day, there's some point that was your least favorite part of the day. It could still be a good thing. Or even if you've had a bad day, there could be like the least bad part of the day. And as you share about those things, those are opportunities to A, thank God for giving those things to us. B, offer encouragement. And C, to point out what God is doing even in the midst of that. See, everyone has an answer for highs and lows. Like there's no way out of the game. It's beautiful because the kids, they don't always like to talk. So you just trap them in it and you're getting answers no matter what. It's great. It's a wonderful tool. And we use it with the students all the time. It's wonderful. But in addition to that, I'm just trying to be real practical here so you understand what it means to live as Christ. The last thing I would point to you is you're seeking to raise your kids in the depths of the gospel of Christ is we have resources available through Right Now Media. I don't know if many of you have heard of that or not, but think of it in simple terms as kind of like Christian Netflix. There are sermons available on there. There are small movies, TV shows available on there, all rooted and grounded in Scripture and teaching about that. That's a very practical way that you can be instilling these things in the minds of your kids. But also, I have many other resources available that if you need help, I would love for you to come talk to me. 
But we think about this in terms of the neighborhoods around us, starting with those close to us in our families. This also means that we are explicitly, all of us who belong to Christ, we are explicitly sharing the gospel with those God has placed around us. So if God and his infinite power with no shortage of resources at his disposal, has seen fit for the furtherance of the gospel to go through our proclamation of it, that means we need to be proclaiming it and not assuming that someone knows it, but explicitly proclaiming that gospel. So we think about sharing with those around us. And maybe you don't know where to start. There are some incredible things at your disposal already. Many of you, I know, know the three circles method of sharing the gospel. We talk about God's creation, brokenness, and how God has restored all things in the gospel through the work of Jesus Christ. That's an incredible method that you can use if you have time with someone. Many of you who have grown up in church, maybe you've heard of Romans Road before, where you take verses from throughout Romans that walk you through the gospel, and you can share the truths of Scripture as well while you do that. Maybe you know that. But here's a simple one that all of us have as believers in Jesus Christ. Your testimony. Your testimony. It doesn't have to look like that you were a drug addict in the deep of everything and God miraculously shone himself in bright light and saved you and now you're living for him and never mess up. No, my testimony doesn't look like that. And I used to wrestle with this. Man, as I would think about sharing my testimony with others, what God has done for me in Christ, my testimony is honestly the exact opposite. My testimony is about what God has protected me from more so than what God has rescued me out of. My sin was just as condemning. My sin was just as awful, just as disgusting to God. But the practical outworkings of it, God protected me more than he pulled me out of it. All of our testimonies look different. But as believers in Jesus Christ, it's something that we all have. So if we are scared when we go to share the gospel and we think we don't have any way to share it, for everyone who's a believer in Christ, You already have a tool in your testimony. And it's been my experience. So this is just me talking. It's been my experience, even as I have conversations with people around town or in the workplace, even those who might be ones who want to argue against the truths of the gospel. The one thing that is difficult for people to argue against is your own experiences. The way that society and culture is heading in America right now is all about our experiences, right? It's all about, well, I feel this way and I've experienced this. So why don't we as believers say, well, let me tell you about what I've experienced and share the truth of the gospel with them. It is very difficult for people to argue against that. Share about what God has done for you. Church, I want you to see my prayer this morning is that you would see and would understand and even find beautiful the fact that God has uniquely wired you and placed you exactly where you are to reach those around you with the gospel. God has uniquely wired you and placed you where you are to share the gospel with those around you. It's not by accident. Just as it was not an accident that Paul was in prison here, it is not an accident that you work where you work, that you play wherever you play, that you live where you live. God has placed you there for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify Christ. If we believe that he is worthy of the worship of everyone, then it is our responsibility to share the reason for that worship, the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And ultimately, this understanding fuels our passion 
not only to pursue Christ in our walk with him as individuals, not only to share with the neighborhoods around us, but ultimately to take this gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we say here, to the nations, neighborhoods, and nations. But not only does it mean to live as Christ, it also means to die as gain. I go back to where I started and talking about the death of those missionaries who have been faithful to the end. And what I want to close our time together with is I just want to show you as clear as possible what it looks like. Pastor Donald did a great job this week doing that, this uh, last week with last week's sermon and talking about today's gain. And I just want to briefly share one more story with you. This is a story of a young man named John Chow. John Chow was a young man who grew up in Canada and America. He was in his late 20s when he gave his life to reach the people who live on the North Sentinel Islands near India. The people of this island have no outside communication with the outside world. They are very much still a tribal people. The Indian government has made it illegal to contact them. There is easily less than a thousand total in this people group. They are very, very small. John's journal after his death is available to us. One of the things that he was intentional in doing was recording every step along the way that he might be able to pass it along, uh, along should he die. And so he recorded as much as he could in it, and he knew specifically as he prayed about it that God had placed a burden on his heart of going to this people group. So John got as many immunizations as he could to protect these people against bringing in outside disease. Before he went to this island with a group of fishermen who were believers that would take him close to it, he stayed alone without any contact for 11 days, praying, reading the memoirs of other missionaries and their biographies so that he might not be in contact with anyone else to be ready to reach this people group. He had thought about this for years, was intentional about it. Late last year, around November of 2018, he gave his life in attempting to share the gospel with this people group. His body was not able to be recovered. In light of this news reaching back to America, the story blew up. Because no one could understand why someone would give his life to reach such a small people group. For some, they believed that he was endangering them for others, he th they thought it was a fool's errand. Why would they do that? There's an article in a London newspaper called The Guardian that I'm getting these quotes from. I'd be happy to point you to it if you'd like to read more about it. It outlines his story extensively, but let me share with you some of what people said in light of his death. A couple, as social media blew up, here's a couple tweets about him. John Allen Chow is not a martyr, just a dumb American who thought the tribals needed Jesus when the tribals already lived in harmony with God and nature for years without outside interference. Another tweet, I'm sorry, but what a deluded idiot. Then listen to his own father. John was an innocent child, his father told me, who died from an extreme vision of Christianity taken to its logical conclusion. John is gone because the Western ideology, notice that, Western ideology, overpowered my Confucian influence, he said. He blamed evangelicals, extreme Christianity, for pushing his child to an unexpected end. And he referred with particular bitterness to the Great Commission, Jesus' injunction that Christians spread the gospel to all peoples. 
That was his father. That's how he talked about the gospel. Doesn't make any sense. This Western ideology, this extreme Christianity, which we know as believers to not be extreme at all, but to be the Christianity that God calls us to each and every one of us, not just a few who find it extreme. The fact that anyone would give their life to declare the salvation of sins available only through Jesus Christ does not make sense to a lost and dying world. It simply does not make sense. But then listen to those who understand why he went. Those who understand what it means to live as Christ, to die as gain. That Christ is sovereign in his power over all things. A friend close to him, a pastor of a church, said this when the reporter was talking to him. If you believe in heaven and hell, then what he did was the most loving thing anyone could ever do. But maybe the best way to put it is in the words of his own diary. This is the night before he died as he had attempted to contact this people group and then had to paddle away and retreat into a cave for his own safety, looking to the next day when he would attempt again, whether through singing songs or showing pictures. Listen to what he says. I'm scared, he wrote that night in his diary. Watching the sunset, and it's beautiful. He was crying a bit and wondering if it will be the last sunset I see before being in the place where the sun never sets. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, he told his family, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. I think I could be more useful alive, he wrote, but to you, God, I give all the glory of whatever happens. Why would anyone give their lives in such a way after years of meticulous planning? John was not the first one to go to this people group. There were others who had gone for different reasons. The end was very clear. Those people were not seen again. He was well aware of the risk that he was getting into. His hope, though, would be that they would give him just five minutes And that through the power of God, he would be able to declare the gospel. Or even that through his death, Christ would be glorified. That this would be an inroad for people to come to know the power of Jesus Christ and the salvation found in his name. John Chow went to that island because the glory of Christ is worth it. To die is gain. John Piper looked at these verses and concluded it this way. Christ is most magnified when we are more satisfied in him than in what we lose in death and what we have in life. Church, the only mission we're going to be willing to die for is the mission that we had already been living for. And the only mission that's worth it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only mission that we can shape our lives around and give our lives for and have it not be shown to be foolish. Remember Paul's confidence that he will not at all be ashamed no matter what happens. Only the gospel provides this power. Many of us will not become martyrs for the gospel of Christ. But this doesn't mean that we miss out on the opportunity to live for him in the meantime. 
Many of us won't be called to go to an island that no one's ever contacted before, that has no contact with the outside world. Many of us won't be called to go there and to die, but that doesn't mean that we aren't called to live for Christ and to glorify him in the meantime. So church, where I want to end today is simply by asking you this. What are you living for? What do you seek to glorify in your life? What are you willing to die for? Do you believe that the glory of Christ is worth it? Are you willing to show that by living for him now? Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and grace that you have shown to us in Jesus. Thank you that this gospel is the only message, the only mission worth living for and worth dying for. And God, thank you that this mission in the end will be, true, be proven to be true. That it will not be to our shame in the end that we are not, as Paul would say, a people to be most pitied because the resurrection is true. The gospel is true. Father, we know that for many in this room, you most likely won't call us out to go die in such a way. But Father, I ask that you would help everyone here to live in such a way that glorifies Christ as we pursue you, as we raise our kids in the knowledge of you, as we seek to share with those around us, and even as we seek to share with the nations around us. God, to your name alone be the glory. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we enter into this time of reflection and response, I just want to call to mind one more time the same question I shared with you a moment ago. What are you living for? For some of you in here today, you recognize that you are not living for the glory of Christ, that you have never repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ to save you from those sins. And maybe this morning... You're wrestling with the fact that whatever you're living for doesn't satisfy because it's not meant to satisfy. And you recognize the truth and what's been proclaimed. And you recognize that in living for Christ, satisfaction and salvation will come. Maybe you need to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. In just a moment, as Jason plays, I want you to come talk to me. I would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus, to repent and believe in him. Maybe this morning you just need to lay everything down at Jesus' feet and you need to repent and say, Lord, I have not been living to give you the glory in every aspect of my life, and today I want to do that. Now is a great time to do that. If you need someone to pray with you, I'd be happy to do that. These stairs can act as an altar. If you need to position yourself in kneeling before Jesus, because for you that reminds you of his authority over you, I would encourage you to do that. Maybe you need to pray at your seat. Ultimately, I ask of each and every one of you that you would do what the Spirit calls you to do here and now. Let's reflect and respond together. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.